Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A lot can happen in three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch, subject to credit approval, terms apply. Hey, this is Chris Kimball, and I need your help. We're working on a story about the battles we all have in our home kitchens. Maybe you're tired of your partner telling you how to cook, or maybe they always leave a mess, or maybe you're frustrated by your loved one's highly restrictive diet. We want to hear about your kitchen dramas, from the biggest food fights to your everyday grievances. You can leave us a voicemail at 617-249-3167, 617-249-3167, or send a voice memo to radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. One more time, call us at 617-249-3167, or email us a voice memo at radiotips at 177milkstreet.com. Please include your name and where you're calling from, and thank you. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Americans turned off dark meat. And part of it was white meat, breast meat, was this kind of rare, beautiful cut that people really valued. And don't forget, chickens had smaller breasts then, so there was just less white meat to go around. Today I'll be chatting with Chris Nuttall-Smith. He's the host of the CBC's new podcast, The Fridge Light, about the odd history of dark meat versus white. But first, I'm speaking with Anat Admini. She's an Israeli-born chef, a New York-based restaurateur, including Balabusta. She's also the author of the cookbook Balabusta, and her newest restaurant venture, Kishkash, specializes in traditionally made couscous. Anat, how are you? Very good. Let's start with a simple comparison. Israeli food versus Jewish food. Because here in America... I think we have a concept of, of what Jewish food is, but Israeli food, it seems to me, is a much broader description. Is there it a is. difference between the two? There is a huge difference between the two. I think when people in America thinking about Jewish food, they obviously think about uh, matzah bowl and gefilte fish, and Israeli food is a little bit of, ba- of that, but it's so much more. So... 
basically what is Israeli food is a melting pot of many different cultures. One things that connected between all that the old Jewish and they had to cook in a little bit different way from places that they came from because a lot of restriction with kosher. And of course, Israeli food is all about as well the ingredients and the produce we have in Israel. So the combination between both, it's creating a really much more vibrant, colorful, a lot of spices and much more bold flavor than what you know as Jewish cuisine in America. Uh, let's talk about couscous. We were in Tunisia recently and uh, cooked couscous with a few people. And um, I didn't realize this, but th- they steam it above the vegetables or chicken or whatever you're cooking. Mm-hmm. And so the steam, which is flavored with the juices of, of the chicken, et cetera, comes up and flavors the couscous. And then you finish the couscous by adding some of the cooking liquid to it and stirring yeah. it fairly vigorously. So is that, how, is that how you're supposed to make couscous, which is you steam it above the foods that you're cooking? Yes and no. So each really, this is so, this is what I'm doing now for probably two years, just research about that. So I do North Africa now, and that's five countries. The only country that don't do this kind of cuisine is Egypt. So between Algeria, Libya, Tunisia and Morocco, they each one have the different style of couscous. The couscous is like the king, is like the highlight, is on the high stage because it's taking so long to make it. And then you have the food next to the couscous. So there is a lot of different condiments. And in Israel, we eat most of the time, we eat couscous on Tuesdays. It's a very specific day to eat couscous. And they used to say that because in Tunisia, the old bakeries used to close at Tuesdays. So they need to some carb and starch. And and in Israel, back in the days, it used to be a laundry days where everybody used to go to the river and do the laundry. And then they used to put a pot of couscous and go make the laundry. Could you just describe how do you make couscous from scratch? Okay. So basically I need two things. I need a couscousier, which is a double pot, like a steamer, with a little bit smaller holes on the bottles than a regular vegetable steamer. And then I need a thing that's called kishkash. It's like a tummy, but with bigger holes to pass the couscous. So I get in like, let's say, a kilo of a fine grain. We call it solid. So it's like semolina. I will put a little bit oil and slowly water. The most important thing is not to put too much water at the beginning because you can make it a dough in two seconds. So you don't want to make it a dough because you cannot fix it after. So basically you just like slowly on top of your hand, put in water and let it like just like drizzle all around and you roll it with your finger. Uh, and after that you need to pass it through the sieve and then steam it for around one hour. And then now it's really warm. You put it again in a big bowl, mixing bowl, and put much more water. Now it can absorb much more water because the heat. So now you can put like triple water than you put at the beginning and pass it really fast and let it sit and let it rise a bit. And after you let it sit for 20 minutes with all this water, now you can pass it again and steam it again. Now, Kishkash restaurant is devoted mostly to couscous. Is that right? Totally, yeah. So why couscous? It's because it has so many different variations. Uh, why why just couscous? No, no, it's a one basic couscous I'm doing there. At first, this couscous is so fluffy and so different, but it's about all the protein that come next to it. And 
when I came in 99 to the state, the one thing I was craving and I couldn't find, it's couscous and mafrum. Mafrum is a Tripoli dish. It's a Jewish Tripoli dish of potato stuffed in beef. And then you sear it and then you cook it in like spicy tomato sauce. And it's really, really delicious. And every time I was go visit in Israel, that's the first things I'm going to eat. <laughs> Anat, thank you so much. I really appreciate your time. Thank you. That was Anat Admini, an Israeli-born chef, New York-based restaurateur, and author of the cookbook, Balabusta. Milstreet Radio is available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows on your phone, or listen anytime. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Right now, my co-host Sarah Moulton and I will be taking some of your calls. Sarah is, of course, the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television, also author of the book Home Cooking 101. Hi, Sarah. You ready for a new batch of questions? I am so ready. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Mike. How are you? Hi, Mike. How can we help you? Well, I've got a question for you about cooking while I'm camping. I'm a volunteer scoutmaster, and a bunch of us go camping with the Boy Scouts every month. So I, I shop for recipes. Typically, it's something, a one-pot recipe with a variety of ingredients, pretty good flavor, color. It almost always ends up being a chicken stew or some breakfast casserole. I chop up everything at home, pack it into the ice chest. So when I get to the camp, I just fire up the propane stove and, and start cooking. One thing I've noticed is that when I peel the potatoes ahead of time and then put them in a container and put them in the ice chest, when I pull the potatoes out and get ready to cook them, they don't look near as good as they did when I put them in there. They're kind of dark and discolored and unappetizing looking. Is there anything that I can do to the potatoes after I chop them up to keep them from getting unpleasant like that in between the time that I prepare them and the time that I actually use them? Uh, sure, you're, you're not going to like the answer. The answer is, and I do this at home all the time, put them in a bowl of cold water and hold them there, and then they can't oxidize. However, if you're going camping, you probably don't want to take an extra quart of water just for your potatoes. I mean, how many potatoes are you cooking, three or four, or a lot? It depends upon the recipe. I may be feeding six or eight of them, so yeah, it might be three or four potatoes, yeah. You know what? It's going to take you three minutes to cut up three or four potatoes. I would just leave them whole, peel them on site, and chop them because dragging the water around. I've done a lot of camping myself, and when I was younger, the solution was a box of instant mashed potatoes, and those are really light, <laughs> and they go really well. The other, other thing we had was we made Bisquick biscuits in a Dutch oven. I was at a ranch once. They used beer as the liquid. Oh, yeah, beer yeah. bread. Beer bread's and, good stuff. And that's really good, too. But I, I would just, if it's three or four potatoes, it's only going to take well, you a few minutes. I, I've got another suggestion. The first one, being a non-camper, is why don't you make the whole stew and just heat it up? Okay, kill me now. I've actually done that a few times, yeah. Uh, why not? It'd be better. Yeah, Any stew is better heated up, and then you can just relax and look at the fire and hang out. But if you're serious about cooking everything from scratch, another solution would be to blanch the potatoes. Just throw them in at the end of the recipe, meaning partially cook them, because that will keep them from oxidizing and turning that horrible color. Oh, partially cook them after I chop them, but before I pack them. Right. Exactly. Good point. Well, I agree with Sarah. I think making the stew ahead of time or parboiling or yeah, uh, would the make potatoes. Sense. Yeah. Okay, Mike. Thanks Good for luck. calling. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. 
Hi, this is Gretchen from Middletown, Connecticut. How can we help you? I'm calling because many years ago I learned the technique of velveting chicken or shrimp from Chinese chef Ken Holmes' cookbook, which I still use. And my husband does most of the cooking these days, and we were just wondering, what is the science behind velveting? We've seen several different explanations online. Oh, good. You know, I just had a big discussion with Grace Young about this a week ago. She authored The Flavor of the Walk, I think, in 2010. And she went on and on about how velveting protects the meat and it's juicier. Do you want to pause for a second and explain what velveting is for people who don't know? Velveting is a coating usually of cornstarch and egg whites that's uh, whisked briefly and then you coat the chicken or whatever. And then you either deep fry it or blanch it. And so it supposedly protects the meat. I don't buy it. She says it does. I say there's no science because meat's moisture content is entirely dependent on the internal temperature. That's the only thing that matters. So it might protect the outer layer from getting overcooked. That I can see. But the internal temperature of that chicken or the shrimp is what will eventually determine perceived tenderness and juiciness. So before Sarah throws her coffee cup at me, I don't think other than protecting the outside layer and giving you a different mouthfeel, but I don't think there's any science to what happens internally in the meat. I find that velveted meat protein is more tender. I'm sorry. It does give you a different mouthfeel, and it probably makes the outside not overcook. But it's not going to stop the internal moisture being squeezed as the proteins cook, and they shorten and twist. A coating will never keep that liquid in. I really disagree. What does Gretchen think? I mean, let's (laughs) ask, now that we completely disagree about this... Well, far be it for me to get in the middle of both of you. I'm not sure. I mean, I love the feel of it. It does feel a little more tender, but it's just, it does have a velvety texture to it, and it just makes it really delicious. I use it in a stir fry. That's the recipe that I learned. You put it in the cornstarch, the egg white, and a little salt, and let it sit for about 20 minutes, and then just put it in a stir fry. You just said something interesting, which is salt. You're essentially dry brining with that salt, and that will okay. actually that will uh, make a difference. Make a difference. So I, I'm all for that. And baking soda sometimes is is in velveting, and that would also change the pH. So that might help. But okay. just the egg whites and the cornstarch, other than giving you a different feeling in your mouth and maybe protecting the outer layer, you know, this is one of those things that we're going to do a test, and one of us will have to do a mea culpa on. National Radio. All righty. I like that. Yeah. I think it's a great question. We're going to go into Milk Street Kitchen and figure it out. Okay. So, All right. Gretchen, Thanks, Gretchen. Thank you. All right. Thank Take you. Take care. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. If you want to know how to make a stew in 30 minutes or how to chop an onion, give us a ring. The number is 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843. Or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Hi, this is Sandra Shaw. Hi, Sandra. I had a sister-in-law who was Scottish, who always used to make Yorkshire pudding ah, yes. in the roasting pan when she finished a roast. Right. And I have since lost her recipe, and I'm at a loss as to why mine is just not as good as I recall her recipe being. And I'm not sure what I'm doing wrong. I like to make the large one, not the small individual popovers in the little pan. Sometimes it puffs up and sometimes it doesn't. I'm at a loss and I miss it. Do you let the batter sit before you put it into the roasting pan? No, I haven't been letting it Uh sit, Chris. Yeah, let it sit at least half an hour. Oh, seriously? 
Yeah, you may make the batter and then let it sit, and that'll hydrate the flour, and it'll end up getting thicker, and it'll be much, much better. That's a key step. Yeah. Oh, my. Yeah. I had no idea. Some of the recipes called for um, taking the drippings out and mixing it into the batter, and I didn't find no. that that works but no, no. well either. No, no, you don't want to do that, but you do want to have that batter go into a pan that has some drippings of some kind in it. <sighs> it adds flavor. Does this rise up and then deflate, or it never rises at all sometimes? I've had both instances. Most of the time, it deflates. You know, it could be that a recipe for this in a roasting pan is Mm -hmm. a different recipe than if you put it in a popover pan because you have more area and you have to have more stability. I wonder Uh if you need more flour in this mixture because if it's a bigger pan, it needs to have more structure. Uh If you look at an old recipe... It does it the old-fashioned way in the roasting pan. I wonder if Mm -hmm. the proportion of flour to to milk is different or the number of eggs is different. Yes, I've tried variations. And I'm using an old-fashioned, it's the blue with the white speckles on it kind of roasting pan. Yeah. Oh, that might be some of yeah, the problems right it's, there. It's not going to hold the heat. I think that's enamel, enamel that's a stainless na- steel. Yeah. yeah, that's not great. That's the wrong pan. Well, what kind of pan should I use? I would do it in popover pan. Oh, I would save some of the drippings yeah. and then mm-hmm. put them into the popover pan, preheat the popover pan in a 400-degree oven, let the batter mm-hmm. sit for half an hour, pour the mm-hmm. batter into the hot pan and shove it in the oven. That'll work. I think that the problem is you're trying it in a big pan, and it's a pan that does not retain heat well, which is a problem. My favorite recipe for popovers, which is similar to Yorkshire pudding, is mm-hmm. Jordan Pond, P-O-N-D, which is in Acadia National Park. And they make the most amazing popovers ever. One interesting point, they have you make the batter the night before. Oh, I'd so, say more than oh, half an hour. Yes, and okay. I've had the best success. Because what I was going to say before, until I started making their recipe, I had the same problem you did, even though I have popover mm-hmm. pans. So I think the resting is key, but I think a better pan is really required here. Yeah. Well, you know, I love them so well, and I miss my sister-in-law desperately. And I am going to do all of these things and be delighted. This is wonderful. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks. Bye. You're listening to Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my conversation with Chris Nuttall-Smith. He's host of the CBC's podcast, The Fridge Light. Coming up after the break. Hey, everyone. I've been on the go recently. Phoenix, Kansas City, Chicago. If you're like me and have a home but aren't always at home, you have an Airbnb. Hosting your home or a spare room is a very practical side hustle. If you live in a big game town, you can Airbnb your place for fans to stay in. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
you know, wonderful pistachios have become my go-to snack. Now, I could list all the health benefits. They're a good source of protein, fiber, and unsaturated fats. But for me, flavor comes first, and that's why it's pistachios, not peanuts, in our household. Wonderful pistachios come in a variety of flavors and sizes, including sea salt and vinegar, chili roasted, and smoked barbecue. Check out wonderfulpistachios.com to learn more. That's wonderfulpistachios.com. This is Mill Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Americans eat so little dark meat that we have to export most of it to Mexico. On the first episode of the CBC's podcast, The Fridge Light, host Chris Nuttall-Smith explores the very strange history of America's love affair with breast meat. Nuttall-Smith writes about food for the Globe and Mail and is a judge for Top Chef Canada. Chris, how are you? I'm doing very well. Uh, you did a piece on the Fridge Light podcast about white meat versus dark meat. If We're talking about chicken, of course. And so let's just do some numbers before we get into that. Chicken was 20 pounds per year per person up until about now 1950, and now we're up to 85, 90 pounds a year. And the chickens have gone from maybe 1,000 grams, you know, which a couple pounds, up to over 4,000 grams in a period of two months. So we got bigger chickens, we got bigger breasts, and I guess it turns out that Americans just don't like dark meat. So there is sort of a, a time frame for all of this. You interviewed a guy called uh, Bill Muir. He's a geneticist. And he talks about the dawn of the white meat era. What, what did he have to say? Bill's fascinating. You know, he's this guy. He's a chicken geneticist. He's worked with a lot of the big chicken breeding companies to build a better chicken. But, you know, what he says and what he focuses on largely is how the dawn of the bigger chicken and especially the bigger chicken breast has affected the animals themselves. And the thing about breeding chickens in particular is they're very, very easy to, you know, to crossbreed just with traditional methods, by the way, not genetically modified breeding, just by mating. And you can change things on chickens very easily. They've been called the barnyard version of Mr. Potato Head. If you want a chicken with bigger breasts, you can select for that and make that happen very quickly. Now, the thing that's fascinating about it is he says, A, we could fix a lot of these issues really quickly, but what that would do is it would make the chickens smaller. And there's such a market push right now to make chickens ever bigger that the you know, the poultry companies haven't done that yet. The other thing he said is, you know, if we decide tomorrow that we want to eat way more dark meat, we can change things on a dime and we can start breeding chickens to be totally different. It's fascinating what you can do with them. Let's just pause here and play a clip from the story. Here's Bill Muir. Oh, nothing is ever too late for, for a geneticist. You can very quickly uh, reverse the trend. You can start selecting for large legs, large thighs, and smaller breasts. And you could quickly reverse this. I would imagine within five or ten generations, you could have an Arnold Schwarzenegger bird running around with huge thighs and legs and, <laughs> and little breasts. <laughs> Americans turned off dark meat, and part of it was... They really loved white meat, especially in the beginning. And it, it was interesting in researching this piece to realize just how valued white meat was. You know, right up until the 1960s, 70s, 80s, white meat, breast meat was this kind of rare, beautiful cut that people really valued. And don't forget, you know, as you said, chickens had smaller breasts then. So there was just less white meat to go around. Well, I know that when <laughs> the recipe Coq au vin, which, you know, I made back in the 70s, you know, right. that was a four-year-old bird, right? I mean, of course. Th that was that had been through its life cycle and was now headed to the pot. And you cook that thing for a couple hours or more, 
you really needed to do that to break down the meat. But if you take a two-month-old chicken and stick it in a pot for a couple hours, uh, it's not going to work out too well. The There's nothing different. left. It falls apart. <laughs> There's nothing left. Then you have right. some sort of you know strange soup. Uh, you spoke with an economist about all of this. And I guess we don't consume all the dark chicken meat we actually produce in the United States. We export it. Well, this is a major, major problem and has been uh, since the 1980s. In the 1980s, poultry producers realized that they could make chicken plants that did nothing but produce breasts, boneless, skinless chicken breasts. And they had to figure out pretty quickly, okay, what do we do with the dark meat? Breasts got so cheap, people wanted them so much. And, you know, major corporations like McDonald's, like Subway, decided to promote the breast. So the McNugget was eventually reformulated to use only white meat. So there was this surplus of dark meat. And the U.S. government uh, did all sorts of things. There was such an overstock of dark meat at one point that they fed a huge supply of it to prisoners. They used it in prisons and in hospitals because they had to get rid of it. But dark meat has also been the source of trade wars. In the 1990s, dark meat used to go to uh, Russia. And chicken legs used to actually be called at the time Bush legs after (laughs) the first (laughs) President Bush uh, because they were so associated with the United States. Russia eventually realized, hey, if we're taking in all this dark meat, this is hurting our, you know, domestic uh, poultry industry. So, you know... The U.S. kind of hopscotched in this excess of dark meat from country to country. It went to South Africa at one point. The U.S. had a trade war that I think is still ongoing. Today, the dark meat overload in the United States goes to Mexico. And Paul Ajo, this economist I spoke with, he told me that if, if Mexico suddenly decided we're not taking any more U.S. dark meat, he said the bottom would fall out of the U.S. poultry market. Huh. So they do have leverage on the wall, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> they do. They do. They can say, we're not taking your chicken legs. Keep your wall. Yeah, it's, it's, it's an incredible, uh, you know, excess of supply that you have to do something with. And the other thing, you know, I spoke with a researcher at um, uh, one of the universities on the prairies here in Canada. His name's Mirko Betti, and he's a meat scientist. And what he learned to do, and this was a major breakthrough, was he learned how to take dark meat to chop it up with water into a slurry to spin it in a centrifuge to separate all its parts out and essentially to science the dark out of dark meat. So what you were left with was this kind of viscous protein matrix, as he called it, that was sort of white Mm. meat. Delicious. It's crazy what people do because they don't want to eat dark meat. So Marsha Pelchot, I actually know her. I guess you spoke to her. Did she have some comments about... uh, you know, food preferences? Yeah, she did. You know, Marcia Pelshat is a neuroscientist from the Monel Chemical Senses Center in Philadelphia, and she studies why people prefer certain foods. And one of the concerns she raised is that North Americans, Americans and Canadians have been trained, our palates have now been trained to appreciate and to choose white meat. Here she is. So we're familiar with a big, big chunk of meat that, frankly, is fairly bland. On the one hand, I guess that it does lend itself to all different kinds of food preparation. But on the other hand, that's, that's what we expect chicken to be. And I don't know that most people would be happy with the flavor of a real chicken anymore. 
we have learned, we have been trained by our food preferences over the last 30 years that poultry shouldn't really taste like much, that poultry should be kind of insipid and preferably white. And that training of our palates has major impacts. It's something that keeps white meat popular. It makes dark meat a harder sell. And it also has real impacts on the birds themselves. I mean, you know, we talked about how the chickens today are bigger and they have larger breasts. But one of the major movements right now in the poultry industry is birds that grow more slowly. Instead of coming to market in 34, 35 days, they maybe take uh, 50 days. Those birds naturally just have smaller breasts. So one of the things that's actually holding this back is that people want breast meat. They don't want as much dark meat, which you would get from those slower-growing birds. Well, if you read old books, uh, fiction or nonfiction, you know, 1900 or so in a rural area, if, if you're having special guests for dinner or family, you go out and kill a chicken. Yeah. I mean, that, that was a big deal. It was a big deal for the chicken, but it was, it was a, also a big deal <laughs> yeah. for the guests. Um, but, you know, the, the contrast to that is, you know, today if you roast a chicken for guests, you know, some of your guests are going to be happy. But other people are going, oh, you roasted a chicken. That right. was kind of easy, wasn't it? It's right. a very different thing. Uh, what about David Chang at Momofuku? He's He likes dark meat, so what is he going to do about that? Right. I spoke with David Chang from Momofuku, and he decided to put his love of dark meat into action. Here he is. As a kid, probably my favorite dish growing up was a braised boneless chicken at a restaurant called Wu's Garden that recently closed a couple years ago. And it was a battered chicken thigh that was first marinated in Shaoxing wine, a little bit of soy sauce, and then battered deep fried and then braised after it was deep fried in chicken stock, Shaoxing wine, a lot of scallions and garlic. And it was delicious and I, I loved it. And it was never made with white meat. And one time I tried to make it myself with white meat and it was not delicious at all. He's a dark meat guy, and he was very careful, you know, not to be too harsh about white meat. He said, you know, like a lot of chefs I spoke with, they said, white meat has its place. There are good things you can do with white meat. But David, you know, has opened this fried chicken sandwich chain. It's a burgeoning plane called Fuku. And Fuku's chicken sandwich is not made with white meat the way Chick-fil-A's is, the way most chicken sandwiches are made. It's made with dark meat. Hmm. And, you know, the reason that they went that way is because in testing this sandwich and trying to get the most delicious, juiciest, tastiest chicken sandwich they could, they realized you have to use dark meat. I wonder, is dark meat more expensive than, than white meat or less? Okay. It's getting, to, it's getting to be this way. And this is the fascinating kind of hinge point that's happened is for so long, you know, the United States, Canada, were practically giving away dark meat. And a lot of it they still do. You know, part of the driver is, you know, big food processors and also, you know, restaurateurs like David Chang have, have decided, have realized, oh, dark meat's really good. We should use that. And it's causing some economic turmoil. Let's go back to this preference for white you can cook dark meat forever, it's still going to be good, right? It gets a right. little stringy and fall apart, but it's still going to be pretty good. Yeah. Uh, in the podcast and in, in your uh, interviewing, et cetera, do you ever come to any conclusion about why Americans prefer – is it just the color? I'll go back to that question. Is it just the color or they think it's a better cut? You know, there's one other driver that I didn't mention that's really interesting, and it doesn't get mentioned a lot. But as we were researching this piece, it kept coming up. 
The 1980s is when people started freaking out, not just about fat, but about salmonella, about food poisoning. There were major food poisoning salmonella outbreaks across the United States. People died of it. There were hospitalizations. 300, 400 people go to hospital. When you check cookbooks from the 1960s, they instruct in chicken recipes, especially from the 1950s, they instruct, take a damp cloth and wipe down the chicken. Can what? you imagine? Yes, that's what they say. The old gourmet cookbooks <laughs> from the 50s say, take a damp cloth and wipe off the chicken. Can you imagine doing that today, Chris? You could do that then because salmonella wasn't an issue. In the 1980s, people start absolutely freaking out about it. And one of the things that the poultry processors managed to do is they managed to persuade people that white meat is safer. You don't have to handle a whole chicken if all you want is chicken breasts or boneless, skinless chicken breasts. You take a styrofoam tray with a little bit of plastic wrap over top. You slit the plastic wrap and you drop it into a pan. Convenience. And the fact that white meat wasn't going to kill you and your entire family, those were real selling points for that cut. So where'd you come out of this at the end of the day? I mean, is where we headed? Is, is, uh, is it going to be exports and imports that changes the game? Is it they're going to figure out what to do with dark meat by taking the color out of it? What's going to happen? I think there's a bunch of factors that are, you know, changing the way we look at poultry, not just dark meat, white meat, but poultry as well. One of them is this push that I mentioned earlier. A lot of major poultry buyers, including fast food chains and so on, have said, you know, within a few years, we are no longer going to buy conventional chickens. And by conventional chickens, I mean these birds that take almost no time to get to market weight and have giant breasts. Those are going away because, you know, consumer demand has said, no, we want birds that are raised more humanely. So that's one of the things that's Hmm. going to happen. And in order for that to happen, the poultry industry has got to build a stronger market for dark meat. I really hope that no chicken's listening to the show because it would be really (laughs) dispiriting. You know, I mean... mean, Plug your ears, chickens. Hey, you're talking about me, you know. Uh, Chris, thank you so much. Now I know about the history of the chicken and the history of white meat and Maybe someday dark meat will come back into favor. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me, Chris. That was Chris Nuttall-Smith, host of the CBC's podcast, The Fridge Light. In Mrs. Lincoln's 1883 cookbook, she always started with a whole chicken. To bone a chicken, she writes, quote, disjoint the chicken, remove the skin, tough sinews and bones, cut the meat from the thighs and breast, etc. You get the idea. But these days, any recipe that starts with boning a chicken is, of course, a complete non-starter. Home cooks today won't even butterfly a chicken. And chicken is no different than white sugar, white bread, or white rice. Maybe it's time to put the color back in our food. Then it just might taste like something. Right now, I'm heading over to the kitchen at Milk Street to chat with our editorial director, J.M. Hirsch, about this week's recipe. J.M., how are you? I'm doing great. So we've both been to Rome, uh, you more recently than I, but yes. a few years ago I was at Il Mani and Pasta and I had cacio e pepe, which of course is cheese and pepper and pasta, and it was perfectly done, and I came home and tried to make it myself, and it was imperfectly done. <laughs> it got gluey and nasty. So you just got back from a trip to Rome, uh, and one of the things you were looking at is how to solve the problem of cacio e pepe. 
and what did you find? Well, you know, I got to admit that when I flew to Rome, I kind of thought it was user error on your part because it's such a simple recipe. And I get there, and sure enough, it was very simple. I mean, cacio e pepe is simply cheese and pepper and mixed with pasta, and it gets creamy and rich and wonderful. And you watch these Roman cooks do it, and that's all they do. They toss it together, no effort, no trouble, delicious every time. Came home, I had the same problem as you. We had to dig into the science of the cheese to figure this one out. So it turns out that Pecorino Romano, the cheese used in Cacio e Pepe and many Roman pasta dishes, in Rome has a high salt content and a low calcium content. Both of those are factors that help a hard cheese like Pecorino Romano or also Parmesan melt more smoothly. It needs a stabilizer, however, and the stabilizer comes from the cooking water that the pasta is cooked in. And that starch stabilizes the cheese, melts it, keeps it nice and smooth, nice and creamy, delicious, all that. Well, the problem is, when we come back here, American Pecorino Romano cheese has less salt and more calcium, and that means that the starch extracted from the pasta in the cooking water is no longer sufficient to stabilize the sauce. So, of course, you ordered a $100 a pound authentic Roman Pecorino to <laughs> solve course, the problem. Of right? course, And you know what? We still have the same problem. <laughs> Because it also age matters, and imported Pecorino Romano, even though it has the higher salt, the lower calcium, is aged. And aged hard cheeses also are very difficult to melt smoothly. So it turns out we couldn't find a solution. I mean, the cheese, you're stuck with what you can buy here. Exactly. So now what? Exactly. So because even imported didn't help us. So we had to find a way to up the starch. We needed to stabilize the sauce better with more starch. And we tried a number of different ways to extract more starch from the pasta. Didn't work. Wasn't sufficient. The answer, so simple. Cornstarch. Two teaspoons of cornstarch made all the difference. What we ended up doing was making a slurry of cheese and water and cornstarch. And we heated that up threw it into our pasta, bang, perfectly smooth, creamy cacio e pepe. Yeah, but this was actually interesting because you used like over a cup of water, right? It wasn't like a slurry with a quarter cup. Right. It was a lot of water in this sauce and you made this sauce separately, right? Exactly. You make the sauce separately, then you cook the pasta just barely al dente. So it still needs a little bit of cooking going on. It's going to absorb some more water. And that's why we were able to add more liquid to the slurry. We throw the slurry into the mostly, but not entirely, cooked pasta, and over the period of about two or three minutes, the pasta absorbs the rest of that liquid. So four ingredients takes maybe 10 or 15 minutes. And I have to say, it's as, as creamy and simple and as good as what I had in Rome. It was amazing. You know, we finally cracked the cheese code. <laughs> <laughs> JM, thank you very much for cracking the cheese code and uh, figuring out how to make cacio e pepe, something that I have not been able to do for years. Thank you. You're welcome. You can find our recipe for cacio e pepe at 177milkstreet.com. I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, more of your culinary questions with my co-host, Sarah Moulton, right after the break. This is Christopher Kimball. You may have heard that we just started running international culinary tours. And one trip I am particularly excited about is Istanbul, which is based in part on my recent visit. Along with our partners at Culinary Backstreet's, we put together an itinerary that goes way beyond the Grand Bazaar. This May, we'll visit local neighborhood markets, take a sail up the Bosporus, and harvest vegetables from farms in the city's ancient moats. 
you'll sample Turkish cheeses, flatbreads, pistachios, pomegranate, molasses, and olive oil. And since this is, in fact, a Milk Street trip, you'll use those ingredients in hands-on cooking classes with local families and chefs. There are just three spots left on our May trip, so visit 177milkstreet.com tours. That's 177milkstreet.com tours to claim your spot. Plus, listeners to our radio show save 5% with code Istanbul. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time to take some calls with my co-host, Sarah Moulton. Sarah, how are you? Chris, I'm great, and I'm ready to go. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Freddie, Sarah. Hi, Freddie. How can we help you? Yes, I've been, uh, what do you call, uh, a little colloquial chef here in Atlanta. I'm from Jamaica. And uh, where we are from, we basically use garlic, scallion, onions, thyme, black pepper, and red pepper. 99.99% of what we cook, these are the ingredients that is used. Okay. I would like to get international and start using other spices. Well, it, here's some advice. First of all, I would separate herbs from spices. Yes. Oh, yeah. Tell me the difference. Well, well herbs are leaves and spices are seeds and yes. other things, bark and whatever. Oh, okay. And I would think of, of it this way. They're foundation yeah. herbs and foundation spices. So parsley, for example, is a foundation herb. Or cilantro can be a foundation herb. For Far East cooking and, and Middle Eastern cooking. And then they're much stronger herbs like dill, like tarragon. So you use smaller amounts of those on a foundation of something that's... Or basil's a foundation herb. With spices, okay. I think the same way. I would say cumin, for example, for a good part of the world in the Middle East, is the foundation spice. Or coriander yeah. is a foundation spice. And then you can add stronger, more specific... Uh, Urfa pepper, Aleppo pepper, uh, turmeric, perhaps, uh, other things, Sichuan peppercorns, things that have very, very specific taste. Okay. So coriander and cumin and those sorts of things are just baseline spices, and cilantro, parsley, basil would be baseline herbs, and then add smaller quantities of others if you want to create a different flavor profile. You know, you know what, Freddie, I was also going to say, you know, cuisines from specific countries, you know, they tend to feature combinations of herbs. You'll see that certain herbs are always put together. And that might be a good thing to do is to just go to the library, get out some different nationalities and see what right. they pair together. Did you so say library? Yes, yes. I love libraries. I love, I love Sarah. She's so... <laughs> so old-fashioned. But um, that's a good yeah. way to start to get familiar with okay. um, those herbs or spices and how right. they work well together. A very flavorful ingredient here is white pepper. Yes, yes. When yes, it do is. you use white pepper? I love white pepper. Unfortunately, in French cooking, you use white pepper because of the color, not because of the flavor. Okay. But there's a white pepper they use in Asian cooking, which is actually more interesting. Yeah, and, and you want okay. a nice hint of spice. I use it right at the end. And the flavor would be basically in the same arena, right? But different. Yeah. It's more floral. Right. It has a, a sort of more right. interesting flavor. Anyway. Like cream of broccoli soup. White pepper goes very well with it. It does. Freddie, I hope that helps. So, I, I, you know, start, oh, yes, start with foundations um, and get some spice blends. And I agree with Sarah. Yeah. Look at, at combinations other cultures just use regularly. 
Jamaica. And we love Jamaica. Yes. So. Oh, yes. yes. Come back there as soon as possible. <laughs> I would love to. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Take care. Welcome to Milk Street. Who do we have on the line? Hi, this is Penny. Hi, Penny. How can we help you? Well, I'm having trouble with my fruit pies and a soggy bottom. <laughs> soggy bottom. Oh, the dreaded soggy uh, bottom. Well, these are two crust pies or one crust pies? Mostly it's one crust, but occasionally two with the apple pies. Yeah, well, there are two answers. With a two crust pie like apple pie, use a Pyrex pie dish glass. Put it on the lowest rack of the oven. I start my pies at 425 for 20 minutes and then turn it down to 375. But with a glass Pyrex dish at the bottom rack, you will, on bake, you will get a lot of heat and it will make a much better crust. Uh, The more difficult way to do this is to pre-bake, of course. You can't do that with a two-crust pie. You can't do that with a one-crust. Pre-bake at 375 for 20 to 25 minutes. You mean blind bake it? Blind bake it. And then, um, yeah, meaning putting in Sarah's some my foil. Here. I yeah, says, I have to. I, I should be speaking in Spanish so that <laughs> Sarah can put it in English. Um, any case, you put foil in it, some beans or whatever, yeah, for wait. about 20 minutes. When the outside starts to firm up, take the foil off, finish it off another three or four minutes to get light browning. And then with a warm crust, like with a custard pie, you heat your custard base in a pot and then pour the hot custard into the hot crust and put that into the oven. And that'll give you a really crisp crust. It's more work and not necessary for a fruit pie. But with a custard pie, you pretty much have to do that because otherwise it will be soggy. Let me throw out two more things. I agree with what Chris just said. But sometimes with an apple pie, it's a really good idea to cook down the apples on top of the stove part way to get rid of the excess water. And then, actually, I take that excess liquid and reduce it down and add it back to the apples, because why would you lose all that? And then you don't have as much water coming out of the apples to sog up your crust, so that helps, too. uh, But then the other thing is, in a single-crust pie, to brush the pie crust after you par-baked it. It's just the old egg white thing? With egg whites, yeah, which seals it. And for a savory tart, you can brush it with mustard. Pre-baking, in part, the apples... Solves two problems. You don't get that huge headspace between, between the top, the top and the crust, crust. Yeah, and you also get less liquid. However, you also concentrate the flavor. Yeah, you do. But you know what? Then you get tart tatin. You don't get a very fresh apple pie. I don't oh. like doing that because I like the fresh, acidic bite of the apple. And when you cook it down, it's a more muted. It doesn't have the acidity. It doesn't have the freshness and the brightness of the apple. So, it solves that problem. But I would prefer to not do that. Anyway, but a low rack really is a good idea. Yeah. I would like to tell you both that I spent the first half of my marriage cooking out of a box and a can. Oh, dear. And then I discovered cooking shows. Yours, Sarah, and Chris. And I love you guys. Oh, Oh, good. Thank you. I have absolutely become a much better cook. Good. (laughs) Just ask my husband. Yay. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you so much yeah, for calling. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Yes. Take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, it's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. This week's Milk Street Basic is how to roast sweet potatoes ahead of time and then store them in the freezer. Start by pricking the sweet potatoes liberally with a paring knife. Place on a foil-lined baking sheet. That's because the juices will run out and caramelize and roast at 400 degrees for an hour to an hour and a half until really soft. When cool enough to handle, scrape the meat from the skins and put them in a zip-closed bag 
and then freeze and use whenever you like. How do you eat a muffin? Well, that question is actually more important than you might think. And here to discuss the psychology of muffin eating is Dan Pashman of the Sporkful Podcast. Dan, how are you? I'm good, Chris. How are you doing? So what are you anxious about this week? Well, I'm not feeling too anxious this week, but I am feeling, you know, it's wintertime, and I have an association with muffins and cold weather. To me, this is muffin season. And muffins are good any time of year, but this is prime muffin-making season. And I have a lot of opinions about muffins. Really? That's really... I'm, I'm shocked. Yeah. yeah. But before we get to the opinions, I have a pop quiz for you. You ready for the pop quiz? Yeah, I'm ready. There are five states that have designated an official state muffin. Now, I'm going to take out Virginia because they copied another state. Sorry, Virginia. So we're, we're down to four now. I'm going to give you the four states, and then I'm going to say a muffin, and you have to match the muffin to the state. Oh, boy. <laughs> All right. I'm the, glad this is not for money. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> the states are New York, Massachusetts, Minnesota, and Hawaii. Okay. First muffin, blueberry. Massachusetts. Incorrect. Minnesota. Correct. Okay. The third grade class in South Terrace Elementary in Carleton, Minnesota, petitioned to have the blueberry muffin made their state muffin. Next muffin, Chris. All right. The corn muffin. Uh, corn muffin, Massachusetts. Correct. Okay. What made you say that? Well, because corn was a uh, key ingredient back in the early colonies, and uh, I would think corn would go with Massachusetts. Certainly, probably not with Hawaii. Right. And according to the website of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, the school children in the state petitioned the state legislature, and it was made official on May 27th, 1986. Can I see a question? Were any of your kids part of the great corn muffin petition of 1986? Don't these kids have other things to do than petition the state about muffins? I mean, <laughs> It was state pride, Chris. Uh, they were learning about state pride. Should we work on their math? Okay, wait, what's the third one? <laughs> Come on, guys. What's like the, the muffin th- Grinch. Yeah, well. Uh, this one should be easy for you, Chris. Apple. The remaining states are New York and Hawaii. New York, and then pineapples, Hawaii, right, or something. Yeah, co- coconut, yeah. A yeah. coconut. Okay, okay, there you go. Okay. Do you share my concern about the cakeification of muffindom, this trend to make muffins more cake-like? Well, y- you and I don't always agree, like, about pizza and some other things, but that's the first thing I thought of when you said muffins. You know, I hate it when they're just little cakes. So if we think of, of all the line of sort of sweet and semi-sweet baked goods, if you think of them along, along a spectrum, and let's say that scones are the, what I think of as the driest, least sweet, and then cake is at the opposite end of the spectrum. Where in that spectrum should muffins fall, do you think? I think it should be, here's, here's what I really think, which is I know what you don't want to hear. Um, <laughs> I, I, I really think muffins should be a base on which you put honey or jam or something else, or maybe a little bit of fruit. But I, th- I think muffins should not be that sweet because then there's contrast between the muffin itself and either what you put on it, the butter and the jam, or what you put in it, you know, Lord forbid, the chocolate chips or the uh, maybe the blueberries or other things. But I, I think they should be fairly neutral. So, so if a scone is a one and a cake is a hundred, I would say that muffins should be around thirty-five. I was going to say thirty. Yeah, I'm with you. Oh, okay. Yeah. And right. matter of fact, I think the corn muffin is the ultimate example of the perfect muffin because it's really not that sweet, and it should be a little coarse. Right. Yeah, you want to have a little bit of grittiness to a good corn muffin, am I right? You do. So if you take cake batter and bake it in a muffin tin, is it still a muffin? Oh, now we're getting existential on me. Uh, 
No. The question is, is a muffin a shape or is a, is a muffin a distinct thing in and of itself? Precisely. I think it's the latter, not the former. Okay, I'm with you. And a muffin top is not a muffin either, by the way. I agree. It's not, but, but it may be better than a muffin. It may be, but it's not a muffin. Do you eat the whole muffin or just the muffin top? Uh, I, I'm an equal opportunity muffin eater. I like the top with the bottom. I, I don't like either of, on its own. Do you not agree that when you have a muffin where the top has overflowed outside of the muffin tin and you get that ledge, the muffin top ledge, when you get yeah. one of those corner parts of the muffin top ledge yeah. and you break it back and you get that out exterior crustiness with a little bit of interior softness, I mean, that is the money bite in a good muffin. Am I right? Dan, the thing I love about talking with you is I have these <laughs> existential arguments about topics I would never in a million years think I would spend more than 10 seconds on. So now we're, now we're talking about the crispy edge of the muffin top when it overflows, really? Uh, yeah. No, I, I, That's I, one of the most important things to talk about. Nah, nope, nope. I, 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 <laughs> nope. Uh, no. Uh, here, here's what it is. You, you need soft, salted butter. It has to be salted butter. And you need the world's best, like, marmalade honey preserves. And it's it's three layers. It's it's the muffin base, it's the very soft salted butter, and it's the sweet condiment you put on top of that. I think I think the muffin itself is a conveyance. It's neutral. It's like veal, but it's the stuff on top that really is the is the deal. Why do you put the butter on first and the marmalade second? Well, that's one of the first things I learned in my French cooking school. She told me the key to a great sandwich was butter insulates the bread from the moistness of the filling. Interesting. With a muffin, though, you're not trying to insulate the muffin from the condiment. If anything, you want the condiment to meld and become one with the muffin. So shouldn't no. you invert that order? No, you, you, you want the bright freshness of the jam insulated from the muffin so it doesn't soak into it. <laughs> you got the jam, the butter, the muffin. I mean, it's like, you know, thing one, thing two, thing three. Larry, Moe, and Curly. <laughs> We're all set. How do you slice the muffin before applying those condiments? Because I, I think it, it has to, to be sliced vertically, top to bottom, and yes. half. Yes, thank you. That's right, and that's because you need to have muffin top and muffin yes. bottom in every piece. Have you ever tried muffin trifurcation when you slice the muffin in thirds vertically, so you get three pieces? No, I'm... <laughs> here in Boston, it's just in half. It sounds like you need bigger muffins. Well, nah, no. Actually, no. I, I do worry about excessively large muffins, to tell you the truth. But but with muffin trifurcation, you get that middle piece has two exposed interiors. So you could actually butter and marmalade both sides of that middle <laughs> piece of muffin. Is this an indication of where you and I are going in 2018? <laughs> uh, right off the edge into insanity, I think so. Yeah, I have a feeling yeah. you and I are going to end up in a bunker somewhere, Chris, I, in not too long. We're going to have a case of muffins and some butter and some yeah. marmalade, and we'll sit there with our spreading knives and slowly go insane. Okay, I'll see, I'll see you in the bunker. Um, yeah. <laughs> you, you bring the muffins, I'll bring the salted butter and the jam, and uh, we'll have a great 2018. Thank you. Deal. Happy New Year. Yeah, you too. You probably know the following bit of doggerel. Do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man who lives in Drury Lane? Well, in Victorian London, many foods were delivered door-to-door -door by street vendors. The muffin, it was more of an English muffin than the sweet American variety, was sold by, in fact, the Muffin Man, and Drury Lane was near Covent Garden. So this popular verse was actually a children's game where more and more kids joined in one at a time until everyone in the room knew the Muffin Man. So who says that food isn't poetry? 
That's it for this week. If you just tuned in and missed our show, fear not. You can listen to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Radio Public, or wherever you get your podcasts. Remember to please subscribe to the show. You'll automatically get every single show downloaded to your phone each week. If you want to learn more about Milk Street, please head to 177milkstreet.com. You can download each week's recipe, subscribe to our magazine, watch our first season of Milk Street Television, or order the Milk Street Cookbook. We'll be back next week, and thanks for listening. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producers, Melissa Baldino and Stephanie Stender. Producer, Amy Padula. Associate producer, Carly Helmetag. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison, with help from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis. Audio mixing by Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. Production help, Debbie Paddock. Our theme music is by Two Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brandel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX. <laughs> <laughs>